Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 41. My name is Christopher Lup. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about edge computing with Teresa Lanowitz, Head of Evangelism and Portfolio Marketing at AT&T Cybersecurity. Hey, Teresa, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Well, thanks so much, Christopher. It's great to join you today. To get things started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. My name is Teresa Lanowitz, and I am head of cybersecurity evangelism, AT&T Business. And what that really entails is thought leadership. And one of the big pieces of thought leadership that we produce every year is our annual AT&T Cybersecurity Insights Report, which is a vendor-neutral, forward-looking report about the challenges and the opportunities that cybersecurity professionals, line-of-business professionals, IT, application development, all of those professionals can really benefit from. Yeah, I read the report. It's uh, really interesting, and we'll get into that later. But before, I'd love to talk a little bit about your career. You have a long and interesting history in technology that began when you graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with a bachelor's degree in computer science. What initially drove you towards technology? So the whole thing with technology was in high school. I was always interested in technology. In high school, I programmed the game of life. So, you know, the the board game life. I programmed that in high school. And I thought, wow, this is just really, really cool. And I would do things like program little random number generators and make people guess the number and say, you know, if you can beat the random number generator, you know, here you'll you'll get a prize and no one can ever beat the random number <laughs> generator. So it was just those those types of things. And in high school I was really active in I grew up in Pennsylvania. I was really active in Pennsylvania Junior Academy of Science and, and all of the clubs such as that. But I also had this creative side as well. I really liked writing. So the idea of going into something like computer science was, for me, a kind of a merging of there's that technology aspect because it's very scientific, but there's also that creative aspect because with software, mm-hmm. you can do just about anything. And so that was really what drove me to that idea of saying, you know, let's kind of focus on computer science, but I also have a minor in English as well. So, and I I really do like to write. So that's kind of, you know, just a little bit about what, what drove me there and what got me there. That's very cool. I started in the arts myself, actually, and I, I feel like computers are the medium of our times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And when I, I worked at Borland for a little while, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the positions I've held along the way. But when I worked at Borland, that was really, really a creative time because the the whole idea of languages and what you could do with these languages, with these compilers that were sitting just on the microprocessor. So that time at Borland was really creative. And Borland was a really, really creative company to begin with in terms of how Borland went about marketing their products, how Borland went about going to market. And it was in the early days. And I think everybody was kind of just making things up. You know, there was no kind of like, oh, let's go to market and do these types of activities. It was, that seemed to work pretty well for us. Let's try that again. So it was, you know, a completely different time. Uh, Looking at your CV, I can see that you were at Sun Microsystems when Java was born. That language really marked a mainstream shift towards object-oriented programming. And I think the concept of the JVM really changed the way people thought about computation. Was that exciting to be a part of? Yeah. And so when I was at Sun, I was working on the Genie project. But you mentioned object-oriented programming, which is one of those things that, you know, a lot of people may not really even kind of be disciples of object-oriented programming today. And when I worked at Borland, 
I worked on C++, which was definitely object-oriented. Borland had other products they had at the time, Paradox for Windows, and this was a productivity tool that was taking advantage of object-oriented programming. So the concepts of polymorphism, inheritance, and encapsulation. And so those three things really constituted um, object-oriented programming. And if you remember at the time, in the in the mid to late 90s, there were conferences around Oopsla, you know, this big mm-hmm. conference where people would come together and talk about nothing but object-oriented programming. And so you're right that Java really kind of brought that even further to the mainstream. But um, when I was at Sun, I worked on the Genie project, and Genie is spelled J-I-N-I. And, you know, there was that old joke about Java, that Java stood for just another vague acronym. And then there was a joke <laughs> about Genie, that Genie stood for Genie is not initials. But Genie took that concept of Java and brought it to what was perceived as the personal area network. So now we think about Internet of Things. So these things that do activities that give us data, that provide us with some information. And at the time when I was working at Sun Microsystems, this was really the beginning of the Internet of Things. And that's really what Genie was all about. Okay, that's that's really cool. Uh, I'm a big IoT fan, and I like playing around with microcontrollers. Yeah, yeah. And Genie is still out there as uh, open source. I think it's in the Apache Foundation right now, but it's still out there as open source. Oh, I'll go look it up after the show and, and okay. link it if there's a page. Yeah, that's great. Uh, another one that jumped out at me was that you were a research director at Gartner when the dot-com crash took place. What was that like, and did any of the analysts at Gartner see that one coming? Yeah, so I, when I was at Gartner, uh, I started at Gartner in 1999, and um, Gartner at that time, if you recall, 1999, that was the cusp of Y2K. And so yeah. that was a very heady time. You had Y2K coming because nobody really knew what was going to happen. If you talk to enterprises at the time, they would tell you they were spending a tremendous amount of time and effort and and resources to really prevent any sort of dot-com crash. The idea of going in and making sure that all the applications they were running, the dates went from being a a, a two-byte field to being a four-byte field because nobody ever thought that these COBOL programs that were written in 1955 would be around (laughs) in 2001 or 2002. And, you know, there's that great old joke about a COBOL programmer that says, you know, oh, you know, Y2K activity was just too much and said, just kind of like, freeze me cryogenically. And then when all of this is over, wake me up. And the, (laughs) the, the, the COBOL programmer is, is lying there and He's gently shaking, being shaken by a scientist in a, in a lab coat. And he says, oh, is it 2002, 2003? And the scientist says, no, it's the year 9,999. And we know, we understand that you know COBOL. So you know, <laughs> kind of just the, the, uh, the, the branches of, of, of where we are with those, those sort of just those very transactional types of programs that have been ingrained in, in our business for a long, long time you know, was, it, it, it's still there. So, um, you know, being at, at Gartner at that time, I mean, I can't speak for, you know, what people were saying, you know, about dot com and what was happening, but it was, as I said, it was a very heady time because it was the Y2K time. And then you had everything going on with dot com and the internet was this new medium and everybody was just very, very excited about the prospect of what the internet could actually bring. And I think that, you know, we've, we've, We've come a long way since then, and and we've certainly done a tremendous amount with 
with the resources that we have. And you know, we're even going further and further with, with the capabilities of what a digital first type of environment and a digital first type of world can really bring to us. Okay, let's get on with the main event. I asked you on the show today so we could talk about edge computing, specifically edge computing in the context of the AT&T report you mentioned earlier. For anybody listening who is not familiar, can you help us define what edge computing is? Yeah, so let me just give you a little bit of context for the AT&T Cybersecurity Insights Report that I've mentioned a couple of times. It's our annual thought leadership piece of research. It is vendor neutral and forward looking. And this year it is the title, the subtitle is Edge Ecosystem. And you hear the word edge all the time out and about anytime you're talking to a tech person, you go to a tech conference, you read a, a technical article, you'll hear the, you, you'll read or see or hear the word edge. And the word edge has different meanings to different people. So if you talk to 10 different people, you're probably going to get 11 or 12 different answers about what edge actually means. So for the purpose of this report, and when I talk about edge, I really define it by three primary characteristics. So the first is it's software defined, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud. The second is that the workloads, the applications, the hosting, it's closer to where that data is being generated and consumed. Because in a digital first world, it is all about that data. And the third characteristic is that it is that distributed model of management, intelligence, and networks. And so you think about that and you say, okay, I understand those three characteristics, software defined, really data driven, all about the, all about the data and that distributed model of management, intelligence, network. You say, what, what does that really mean in real life? And inside the report, we have use cases across seven different verticals that we surveyed and an example that I like to give all the time because people encounter this on a daily basis. You drive into a parking structure and you see one of those big digital scorecards that says, you know, there are two parking spaces available here on the first floor. And you think, well, you know, do I want to take my chances and drive around seeking those two available parking spots? Or do I want to go up to the next level and probably have a better chance of getting a parking spot? So you drive up to the next level, 50 available parking spots. That's really edge computing. It's that near real-time information that's being given to you. It is it is data-driven, and it is that data is being generated and consumed right at that very point. So when a car pulls into a parking spot, the sensor decrements it and sends the information to the board right away. When a car pulls out of that parking spot, the sensor senses it and and increments that that board right away. So it's that near real-time information. It's software-driven. The the, the workloads, the hosting, the application is closer to where that data is being generated and consumed. And then if you think about it, you know, you probably encounter edge computing in a lot of different varieties and you probably don't even realize it. So just kind of stop and, you know, think about what's going on around you and you can kind of probably identify some areas of edge computing. And edge is all about that data. And, you know, we're really poised for this new, this next new era of computing that is really underpinned by networks with lower latency, higher bandwidth, and the applications are changing or the apps are changing. They're becoming non-GUI applications. So they're not these applications that we have thought of in the past, those, those applications that have some type, they're waiting for some type of response from us, the user, via keyboard, whether it be a mobile app, a web app, uh, these edge apps, these edge applets, they are ephemeral. They'll come together on an as-needed basis, and they're they're small. 
And so what this is building out is this whole ecosystem, a new network, new types of applications, and it's all about serving the users from that digital first experience. What are some of the businesses or industries that are seeing the most benefit and opportunity from adopting these edge architectures and technologies at this point? Do you have any specific use cases you can share? Yeah, a lot of really great use cases. And the use cases, we go into much more detail in the use cases in the report, but we surveyed seven different vertical industries. So healthcare, finance, retail, manufacturing, energy and utilities, transportation, and U.S., United States, state and local education and higher, or state and local government and higher education. And we asked each of these um, survey participants, we surveyed over 1,400 people from around the world, so it's a truly global survey. We asked each survey participant, what are your primary edge use cases, given those characteristics that we just talked about? And we saw that in 2022, the top use case that came back in 2022 was from manufacturing. And it was this idea of visual quality inspection on the assembly line. So using a series of cameras and sensors on the assembly line to understand exactly where a defect may be inserted. And in 2023, the top use case for manufacturing changed from visual quality inspection to smart warehousing. And that again was one of our top use cases for the industry. But the top use case that came back was from U.S. state, local, and higher education in terms of smart buildings, being able to predict maintenance, being able to use a series of cameras and sensors and to understand the traffic inside of a building, being able to use smart thermostat controls to say, you know, people were not here after six o'clock in the evening. Let's make sure we can control the temperatures a little bit better. So those smart buildings are really coming online. And the really, really interesting thing that we saw with all of these different use cases, you know, in uh, transportation, uh, fleet management was the top use case. In um, retail, it was real-time inventory management. What we started to see in these use cases is that 48% of our survey participants said, you know what, the endpoints that we're using to really present this data They're the common endpoints, our phones, our tablets, our desktops, our laptops. But what we started to see emerge is that people were predicting that over the next three to five years, we're going to see a whole different series of endpoints. We're going to see things such as smart robots for smart warehousing in the manufacturing environment. We're going to see things such as autonomous vehicles, autonomous drones. We'll see things such as smart wearables for healthcare. So the ability to track, you know, post-surgical home healthcare, track vitals. And in many cases, these endpoints are going to be very intentional and purpose-built. So we're moving away from those traditional endpoints that we all know, our standard tablets, phones, laptops, and we're getting very specific with the endpoints that we we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting future for sure. Um, In the report, it states that edge computing offers survivability benefits. Can you explain what this term means and and how that benefit is brought about? Yeah, it's this really, this really, this idea of resilience. And if you think about some of the things that we encountered over the past three, four, five years or so, businesses were disrupted in a big, big way. 
And resilience, the idea of resilience, the idea of being able to pivot your business, the idea of being able to make changes very, very quickly, really became a point of design. And so this idea of survivability says that you want to make sure that a pillar of your design is really future-proofing what you're doing. So future-proofing those edge computing use cases, those edge computing ideas that you have. So that idea of survivability says that if you have to bring on a new endpoint, if you have to expand your endpoints, if you have to suddenly use an application differently, if you have to make modification to where that data is going, you need to be able to do that in near real time and not take down the, the, the use case or the application for very, very long. So it's this whole idea of the uh, um, just being able to be resilient in what you're doing and build with the future in mind. Kind of like these ideas of uh, continuous integration, but at a, a business system level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And continuous integration is a really great analogy for that. So continuous integration, meaning you are always planning ahead. You're always looking for what's next. And this idea of building with resilience, building with that survivability as we identify it in the report makes a whole lot of sense. It's a great analogy. Yeah. And building things fast often comes with security concerns. So how big of a concern is security in edge architectures? I know it's probably very use case or even industry specific, but what are the most common security risks seen in these architectures and what are common approaches taken to mitigate those risks? Yeah. And security, you know, I mean, you've been looking at security for quite some time and, you know, security was always one of those afterthoughts that people would say, well, let's put this out and see what happens. Or there would be some sort of cybersecurity event. They would be, there would be the subject of an attack and they would say, why in the world would anybody attack us? We're too small. We don't have the type of data that the adversary is looking for. And I think everybody got a whole lot smarter about that over the past three, four years. You know, at the start of the pandemic, we saw adversaries go after churches, schools, and hospitals. And you would think, just kind of leave that. That's off limits for everybody, even a, you know, really bad guy. But, you know, they, they ramped up the attacks on, on uh, churches, schools, and hospitals. And so what happened over the intervening three years is organizations suddenly got really, really smart about security. Security went from being you know, these really smart people who are over here looking at your logs saying, hey, we have some type of event. We need to take this system down and, and you know, kind of isolate what's going on, isolate the, the attack area. And so security went from being these really smart people inside of an organization to now really being a business requirement. And if you are thinking about using edge computing, what we learned in our research in 2022 is that the line of business is really driving edge computing. The line of business is saying, we want to be able to use a digital first world to deliver better user experiences for our customers, whoever they may be. And so what they're saying now is security is part and parcel of everything we're doing. And if we're not building security in, we're going to have a problem. So it's the idea of building security in from the beginning. And you start to see now, you'll hear application developers talk about DevSecOps or SecDevOps, you know, whatever your favorite portmanteau is. I, I was told that you have to say DevSecOps because the developer comes first. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of security, you know, kind of 
you know, kind of may, may, may take precedence over that. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the, where the, where the acronym is really, or the portmanteau is really landing right now is it's probably going to be more in the DevSecOps area. But you, you suddenly start to hear about, you know, developers talking about DevSecOps or SecDevOps. I don't want to leave security out, you know, out of first position there. <laughs> but, um, you know, you said, you said, I, I did get that information from a developer. So, you know, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Very developer centric view of the world, which is appropriate yeah, for right. a developer. Yeah. Um, but, you know, three years ago, five years ago, we would have never heard a developer say DevSecOps. You know, yeah. certainly not SecDevOps, but we probably would have never heard a developer say DevSecOps. And we have some empirical evidence from our AT&T Cybersecurity Insights report. What we found is we, we asked our survey participants, of your total edge budget, how much are you allocating to security? How much are you allocating to applications? How much are you allocating to planning? And how much are you allocating to network? And it is almost equal, which is just, it was, that was a shocking piece of data to get back. And we were so thrilled with that piece of data because what we found is that of a total edge budget, uh, edge computing budget, uh, our survey respondents said we are allocating 22% to security, 22% to applications, 23% to planning, and 30% to networking. So, that's pretty evenly distributed, right? I mean, it's something that is completely different than what we would have seen a couple, three years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was always an afterthought and people had to fight for security budgets and it was it was not a thing that was taken seriously until after you got breached. Right, exactly. After you got breached. And that's, you know, 2020 with that rapid move to work from home, 2020 became the year that security went from being a technical issue to really being a business requirement. And we're seeing this now play out. So people are saying, for this next generation of computing, we're bringing all these things together. And that to me is also, it's just a really nice way of saying that we can't continue to live in these silos that we've been living in over the past four or five plus decades. We can't have the dev team over here and the security team here and the networking team not communicating or talking with one another. So it's a really nice way of saying that we're starting to see those decades-old silos just really start to erode. Yeah, I totally believe that security needs to be considered like a first-class citizen in, in all computational designs and in considerations. So it's great to see that's playing out. Yeah, and, and along with applications too, because I think that what we had seen in the past is, as you said, you know, we'd wait for some type of breach, some type of cyber incident to happen, and then we'd say, well, what are we going to do about security? And we'd start to formulate a plan in the midst of a crisis. And so now people are saying, you know what, we need to be smart about it. It is a business requirement. But what they're also saying is, you know, as we move to this idea of edge computing, applications are also really important. We can't just say, let the developers sit over there and kind of do what they want and then just throw them out into production and you know, if they don't work, we'll fix them. It, we're, we're really focused on more of an integrated ecosystem now with edge computing than we have been in the past. So it's nice to see that there's this, this, this movement to saying it's important for all of these groups to work together. 
Your report talks a lot about operational technology or OT. Is that considered edge computing by default? I know oftentimes OT systems are segregated from IT, only connecting across when needed. It seems very similar. Is there a difference in characteristics between the two or are they really one and the same? I think we're seeing that convergence, OT and, and, and IT, operational technology and information technology. There's a lot to be learned. And I think that if you go out and you talk to enterprises that have largely been led by operational technology, they'll say, well, you know, we have to take the driver's seat and we have to let these IT guys know, you know, the way we need to perform. Likewise, if you go out and you talk to enterprises who have been largely driven by IT, they'll say, well, you know, the OT groups, they really need to come along. And, you know, we start to to really see the use cases that we saw manufacturing, for example, we start to see the importance of APIs. And that comes down to you have to have good software engineering practices. You have to make sure that you have good repositories. You have to understand where your software is, where your software is coming from. The the development team can't just say, oh, here's a new API. Let's throw it into production and not let the security team know and not let the operations team know because it's so, so easy to be able to go in there and see a difference of you know what APIs you're running between you know, from now and six months prior or now and 12 months prior. So it gives the adversary just a, a another way in. So again, going back to that idea of collaboration is really important. Your report mentioned specific scenarios in OT environments where patching known vulnerabilities becomes problematic and that the more expedient thing may be to employ other technologies like EDR. Can you explain why in some cases using these secondary methods to address vulnerabilities makes more sense? Yeah, and this is what our survey participants told us. And if you take a look inside of the report, we have a a table that talks about the cybersecurity controls and the perceived cost benefit of them. And I look at that and I think that is somewhat of a legacy way of thinking because the, the two types of cybersecurity controls that are way, way down at the bottom are patching and DDoS. And so patching, I think people look at that in a very sort of antiquated way. And they think about patching as being very reactive. You know, a a vulnerability is discovered quick. Let's close everything down and patch. They think about it being very manual. They think about it being very time consuming. So there are really good automated patch solutions on the market. And the more and more you are relying upon these IoT, the Internet of Things, these IoT types of devices, you have to be more proactive with your patching in order to address those vulnerabilities. The other thing that really, really, in terms of how people perceive the value of cybersecurity controls, they rank DDoS very, very low, which is really surprising to me. And this is the second year in a row that DDoS, in terms of the perceived cost benefit, has been ranked very low. And patching, in terms of the perceived cost benefit, has been ranked very low. But yet, we then take a look at uh, the perceived attacks that people are most concerned about, and DDoS suddenly jumps to the top. DDoS is the number one attack that people are, they perceive to be of concern. And last year, DDoS was last, and this year, DDoS is first. But people are saying, well, we're not so sure investing in DDoS from a cybersecurity control is really that important to us, but yet they perceive it as a top the the top attack. And so I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there in how people are thinking about 
the cybersecurity controls that they deploy. I think there's uh, a change in the cybersecurity culture. I think there's this change in how you think about these controls. We know that the more edge computing use cases an organization has, the more they value these cybersecurity controls, especially around the idea of protecting those those endpoints. So it's a an overall shift in the cybersecurity culture in terms of those controls and how valuable they are to them. Right. And, and I think if a company is sort of going all in on edge computing, they're probably more forward thinking in general and thus prioritizing security more. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, I mentioned that, um, and if your listeners want to download the report, it's table three on page 30 in the report. And it is the um, the perceived attacks that organizations are most concerned about. And we have it broken out by attack type. So DDoS all the way down to ransomware with phishing, business email compromise, um, personal information exfiltration, all the different types of attacks that people told us they were concerned about. And then we have it broken down by industry as well across those seven vertical industries that we surveyed, as well as in the aggregate. And in the aggregate, attack that people are perceiving to be the, the the biggest concern is DDoS. And if you think about DDoS, it's easy and it's inexpensive for an adversary to execute a DDoS attack. If you think about what ransomware entails, it says you have to rely on somebody helping you. You have to rely on them to click on a malicious link, download an email. They have to take some sort of active part in that to install that malware. So now in the world of Internet of Things, think about the billions of Internet of Things that are now connected to the Internet. And suddenly, this idea of DDoS starts to become very real because it is easy and it is inexpensive to do. And the adversary can can definitely do this very, very easily. Yeah, and we've even talked about on this show, there's uh, threat actor groups that have DDoS for hire services, you know. So you don't even have to have the technical capability yourself. You just go pay in some cryptocurrency and you can point their botnets at, at whatever target that you're looking to hurt. Yeah, everything is a service, right? I mean, that's that's where we're getting. And so it used to be back in the old days that the adversary had to have some significant computer skills. And now it is everything is a service. You buy it on the dark web. It's frictionless. It's a It's a business, right? Yeah, we're actually talking about, I think we might do a deep dive show where we look at the different things because there's, you know, access brokers, ransomware specialists, negotiators, you know, there's all these services lined up. So you can kind of, it's like running a normal company. I don't know why they go through the trouble of doing it and risking jail time. Yeah. And even in terms of help, it comes with full help desk support. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's extra though. It's extra. Yeah. As, as, yeah. yeah. I've talked about it before on the show, but for anybody that's not familiar, can you explain what a software bill of material or SBOM is and, and why they're critical pieces of a strong edge security posture? Yeah, and SBOM is a critical piece of any bit of software that you're building, any bit of software engineering. And you've heard the SBOM or the software bill of materials. You've heard a lot about it lately. If you go to a conference, especially any conference focused on software development or application security, You'll hear a lot about the SBOM concept, software bill of materials. It is important to know where your software is coming from. So it's not as though in the old days that you're writing a COBOL app 
and your COBOL developer down the hall in his cubicle or her cubicle is writing your source code, and you know that is where your source code came from. Or maybe you bought a little bit of source code from your favorite software vendor and it's in there. But now we're bringing source code into our applications from a variety of places. Yes, you may have your own internal developers working on it. You may be purchasing some of it from one of your favorite software vendors. You may be getting some from open source. You may be getting some from your favorite open source repository. And you need to know what repository that software came from. You need to know the software developer that whose name is attached to it. So this idea of SBOM becomes critically important. And especially as you start to look at things such as edge computing, you know, is this bit of software still being maintained? If it's not being maintained in an open source environment, then maybe you as the person who, the company that's using that software, maybe you then have to take on the maintenance of it. So those SBOMs are really great because it gives you that paper trail, if you will, of where your software actually comes from and who the primary author of that software is. And and I can think of cases very tactically, like where we saw Log4j and a lot of people didn't know if they had that in their stack somewhere, something like an SBOM, you'd be able to just go look at it and see if that was in your stack and then remediate appropriately. Yeah. And the concept of SBOMs, you know, it seems to kind of come and go just like everything else. And uh, the last time we were really focused on this idea of give me this software bill of materials was probably 2007, 2008, 2009, and that time frame. And the reason it peaked in popularity at around that time frame is that's when we really started to see open source come into play very in a very, very broad way uh, for a variety of reasons. But at, the, at, at that time, we started to see companies, specific software companies emerge that really would help you track your SBOM. And now here we are, we're moving again to this idea of SBOM because open source is very much so entrenched in everything that we're doing. And as you said, you want to know what version of something you have, you want to know what files you have, what is actually in that stack. So I think that SBOM is now, it's going to be firmly entrenched in in everything we do. You know, you, you were mentioning continuous integration earlier on. You want to make sure that you understand what is going through that pipeline. What are you able to deploy at any given time? What can you roll forward to? What can you roll backwards to? You know, if you're sitting in that operational chair, inside of an enterprise and you suddenly have some type of vulnerability that takes something down or some type of defect that takes something down, you want to know, can I roll forward? If the answer is no, that's okay. But can you roll backwards and what can you roll backwards to? And is is it okay? And your SBOM will tell you that. Yeah, I think supply chain attacks and build pipelines as targets for adversaries are are probably the the biggest things we're going to see in the next few years. Totally agree. Your report also lists data centers as edge devices. I have a bit of a hard time with this one. Are we talking about regional data centers or like micro regions? Probably both. Um, We didn't get that granular in the question. So I I would say probably both. But, you know, the, the micro region probably makes a whole lot more sense. Because one of the things that we talk about in terms of the characteristic is that from an edge computing characteristics that the data is closer to the applications, the workload, it's closer to where that data is being generated and consumed than it is data-driven. So micro-region probably makes more sense, but we didn't get into that granular of a question, whether they're region or micro-region. But my guess would be 
you know, the the intent is probably that idea of micro-regional. Yeah, like city by city yeah. or or maybe even yeah. county. Um, is there anything we failed to cover in our conversation about edge computing so far that you think we should bring in? I think we covered a lot of the report. You covered a lot of the highlights, and I'd really encourage your listeners to download it at cybersecurity.att.com. I'll give you another teaser of something that's in the report is the overall confidence level geographically. So in the report, we have a, a scatter plot that shows geographic confidence around the world becoming much, much greater in 2023 for cybersecurity attacks and also for the impact of the business. So what that tells us is that over the past year, since the last time we asked that question, that over the past year, organizations have really bolstered themselves and they feel very confident. And some of that comes from the fact that they're working with trusted third-party advisors, that they are they understand that security is not a do-it-yourself type of activity. In fact, we found that 74, 71% of our survey participants said that once they get an edge use case into production, they're bringing in that third party, whether it is a consulting organization, a global systems integrator, managed security service provider, a telco uh, for from a from a network carrier perspective. So they're bringing in somebody to help. So they're realizing that security is not a do-it-yourself activity. Okay, yeah, and I'll link the report in the show notes. Uh, you link everything we talk about on the show so people can get that easily. And this is the final question I have and the one I ask of everybody on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? Wow, that's a that's a really interesting one to end on. And so, of course, given that we've just been talking about this report, the AT&T Cybersecurity Insights Report on Edge Ecosystem, of course, edge computing is one of those big things. But I, I, I do think that we're going to see a lot more in application security in the next 12 to 18 months. The time is right for it. We touched on some of those reasons as to why. But the whole idea of application security is real. And I think we're going to see a very strong focus on the data lifecycle and data governance. So we're collecting all of this data. What do we do with it? Do we even need everything that we're collecting? So there's a going, I, I believe there's going to be a big, big focus on, on the overall data life cycle. And then, of course, I think we'll, AI, you know, I, I think that that kind of goes without saying, right? I mean, we're going to see so much in terms of what organizations are doing with digital twins. What types of compromises can be impacted through those digital twins? And then I think we'll start to see things such as disaggregation of networks where you pull networks apart and you can break them into smaller, more consumable sizes. And maybe you'll be able to just, uh, if there is some type of cyber event that you need to recover from, just spin up a new instantiation. So this idea of self-healing, which we've been talking about for a long, long time, really will start to come to fruition. And I think that's probably longer term, but that's definitely something that is is on the horizon. Interesting. That's the first time I've got that one from a guest. So. <laughs> Uh, you get you get a gold star. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Teresa. This was a great conversation, and I'm excited about the, the work you guys are doing over there at AT and T. Well, thanks so much, Christopher. It was great being here. Okay, take care. Bye. And that concludes episode 41 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at lemacharlie.io. 
You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you on the next episode.